Lord, we come and we thank you, Father, that you meet us. And we pray, Father, you'd open our ears to hear you and to see you. In Christ's name, amen. Be seated. If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Acts chapter 13. Somebody can give us a page number if you have a house Bible. 766, that was quick. Who said that? Who's our Bible scholar? Well done, yes. You know, it's interesting, uh, last week we t- we've been going through the book of Acts and uh, we were in chapter 12, we were talking about prisons last week and um, kind of unpacking what it means that the Lord steps into the middle of our prisons and uh, I don't know about you, maybe you saw everything you were involved in this week as a prison. You know, Lord, let, set me free from the prison of this job or this relationship. Or we may have been praying, God set you free from your bad breath or something like that. But uh, I want to say something before we go into chapter 13. Because when the Lord comes and sets us free, when he opens up a prison door, and we're so used to living in prison that when we step out, sometimes it's weird to breathe free air. It's, it's, it's hard. It hurts our lungs. It kind of is, is a strange rhythm to our lives to not live in the confines of the prison that we've trained our whole selves to live in. And maybe for some of you, you have families that have trained you like five generations back how to live only within the cell of this prison. And maybe last week you were awakened to the reality that God's power can step in and not only has removed the doors off that prison, but he beckons us to come now. Come and run. Come on, there's a lot of cool stuff outside this prison wall. And I want to say this uh, just as a point of clarification. For some of you, your freedom may not look like what you may think it looks like. For example, you may be struggling with an addiction and God has taken off the cell doors on the prison of your addictions. And you went through this week going, man, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. And yet you've come to the realization that you still love alcohol. Like you love it. Or maybe you have a passion for pornography. I mean, it has captured a part of your heart that you you love it, you know? And you may say, when is that going to go away? And I just want to encourage you that freedom sometimes doesn't necessarily mean that we're cut free from the struggle. You may go to your grave loving alcohol. But there is something remarkable when we're set free because a greater desire steps in. You know, when Scripture talks about, you know... Uh, for someone to take over a house, they got to come and bind the strong man that's in the house. That a new strong man has come into your house, and now he runs the house. I don't know if that makes sense. Some of you may be in a prison of a relationship. Maybe you're in a marriage, and you're like, you know, this is miserable, but this is where God has you. And the freedom may not be that, you know, your mate, uh, you know, packed up their bags and disappeared to Bangladesh. <gasps> Yes, you know, maybe your heart says that would be awesome, like disappear. That would be great. No divorce, you know, but they may not disappear. Matter of fact, they may not change at all. So how is that freedom from the prison? Unless something has happened now to where you live in a new reality and joy in the midst of your struggle. Some of you say my singlehood is a prison. So God set me free from my prison. So where is she? 
Or you may still be single this week. You may not even have had a date since last Sunday. God may not be bringing you someone to marry right now, but maybe he's setting you free from the chains of believing that that person that you hope that you're going to marry is now your hope. Trust me, whoever they are, they're not strong enough to carry the hope that your heart wants. So as we step into this, what does it look like to breathe fresh air, to breathe free air? We come to Acts chapter 13, all right? So let's, uh, let's dig in. This is in verse 1. In the church uh, at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. So the church has just began. The book of Acts is about the early workings of the church. Christ has risen from the dead. The Holy Spirit fell on the believers in Jerusalem right after the Passover. Uh, Pentecost, thousands of people came to know the Lord. And then persecution broke out and people are being killed and thrown into prison. And all kinds of crazy stuff's happening. And these believers are scattered everywhere. And some of them have landed in Antioch. And some that landed there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, we talked about him uh, a few weeks back. Then there's Simeon called Najir, which means he was the black one. So this is a this is a mixed crowd. Lucius of Serene, Manin, who had been brought up with Herod. This is a guy who the Herod that we talked about last week that array, that uh, arrested Peter and beheaded James, this guy was brought up with him. They were stepbrothers, brought up in the same house, and now he's one of the leaders in the church? Crazy. And Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And what I want to just spend a few minutes talking about this morning as a community of people that are saying we want to live in the fresh air of freedom is some of what that fresh air smells like is fasting. These guys were worshiping, fasting, and praying. And we know somewhat about worship and we know somewhat about prayer, but what is up with this fasting thing? Like, really, I mean, this is going without food. Well, let's go to Matthew. If you got a Bible, hang a left and keep going to you up in the corner. There's a word. This is Matthew. And then uh, we're going to go to chapter 6. It's a funny number. Don't you agree? Y'all need to lighten up a little bit this morning. Everybody's so serious. Thank you for that sympathy laugh. It does not help. This is in uh, chapter 6, and this is in verse 16. This is Jesus speaking. He says, When you fast, do not look somber, as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I'll tell you the the truth. They have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There's a couple things I want us to get, and then we're going to jump to another passage. Jesus is making it very clear that when you fast, there are a couple of things that are competing with one another. One is, I want everybody to know that I'm fasting. I am making such great sacrifices for God Aren't you amazed by me? I'm telling you that other people's amazement of us 
and the belief that we're spectacular or the awe, it is intoxicating. It really is. Have you ever dressed to kill? Like you've got your, your, you've dressed up and you walk into a restaurant and people's heads actually turned when you walked in. Some of you have had that experience. There are many of us that the gag reflex happens when you walk in. But let's, let's just pretend it happened to you, okay? That's intoxicating, isn't it? Or that somebody that you cherish their opinion, you walk into the room and they go, Oh, you are stunning. (laughs) Is that not intoxicating? Or somebody that doesn't even love us says that. We'll take that too. It doesn't matter. We're cheap. We're easy. Because it's intoxicating. And Jesus knew that. And he says, when you fast, there are two things that are competing for your ear. You're either listening to what the people around you are saying or you're going to listen to your father. You have a choice. So he says at the very end of this, there is reward in fasting. There is reward. It's just so funny how we just are so drawn to each other to get what we want from life. Like I'm going to a conference in a couple of weeks. I was with some friends and this is like, Well, tell us about the conference. And I said, well, uh, you know, Bono is speaking at this conference. I mean, even being associated with somebody who's spectacular kind of rubs off and makes us spectacular. And they go, really? He's speaking there. Well, okay, he's not really speaking there. He's being videoed in for the conference. Oh, wow. So they're going to, well, no, actually, I think it's like a podcast they're just going to play during the conference. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse. But at the beginning, I wanted people to say, yeah, I'm hanging out with Bono uh, a couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, you know, just hanging, him and me and 30,000 other people. It, it is a poison because we can't hear two things. I cannot tune my ear to gain my life value from you and also tune my ear to the Father. I'm just simple. Okay, let's go to Matthew chapter 9. That's like 6, it's just upside down. It too is a good number. Verse 14. The disciples of John and some of the Pharisees were questioning Jesus because none of his disciples fasted. And they practiced fasting. It was a part of of the community life of those who followed Yahweh. And here's Jesus saying he is the Messiah, and yet his people didn't fast. Was he putting an end to fasting? Listen how he answered. How can the guest of the bridegroom, this is verse uh, 15, mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skin will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskin will be ruined, and nobody gets to drink the wine. Modern translation. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So Jesus is saying a couple things about fasting that is important before we talk about the rest of this is that there's going to come a time where Jesus is going to leave and he's going to send his Holy Spirit. We are in that time, okay? And in that time, Jesus said, there will be fasting. 
that we as those that follow the way, those of us that say Christ is my Lord, Jesus is saying, yes, fasting should be a part of your life. But you need to be careful because the fasting that we're talking about today is not the old wine and the old wineskin. Now, let me explain that analogy. If you take wine, new wine, it's still fermenting, expanding, and you put it in a wineskin made out of an animal skin that is new, then it can expand with the fermented wine. So when you put the wine in it, it expands and the skin expands with it. But then after that skin fully expands, it can't expand anymore. So if I drink all the wine or pour out all the wine that's in that wineskin and I pour new wine in that's expanding, that old wineskin is going to burst. Help me. Did that explain that? All right. Did that make sense? Because I'm very confused by myself right now. All right. So Jesus was saying there's a new wine coming. And you can't put it in the old paradigm because it's not big enough to handle the expansion of the new. The old fasting was we fast because we long for the day when we will taste God's plan for Israel. We long for the day where we will see the Messiah, the one that will restore his people and usher in the new age of the kingdom. And what Jesus is saying is that when he dies on the cross and raises again, that this new fasting is not those that are looking forward. Those We are now those that are looking back and in the present. We fast because we have tasted, not because we're longing to taste. We fast because Christ has come. I mean, listen, the blood is shed. The lamb is slain. The price for our sins has already been paid. Sin has been executed and death has been defeated. We are now new creations in Christ. We are new. The spirit is sent. The wine is new. And we fast as those that have tasted and get this and want more. Fasting is the work of a greedy soul that wants more. Listen to Psalm 63. Listen to the hunger, the desire. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the riches of food. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. The cry of one that is tasted and hungers for more. So what is the reward? Let's take a few minutes and talk about that. What is the reward? Is fasting kind of like a supernatural spiritual headlock that we put God in? You know, that now that I'm fasting, you really have to listen to my prayers? Or is it this prayer on steroids that when we want God to answer something, like really want him to answer something, like where we have a hard time saying, yes, Lord, your will be done. No, I want this. That we fast and then we get it? Yes. No, of course not. 
The first thing, I'm going to talk about two things, and then we're going to respond to them. Desire reward. I said desire reward. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, I have to be honest with you, I stink at fasting. I really do. Like, I hate missing breakfast. I get grumpy. Uh, you know, I... I get hungry and I get irritable. Like, I get hungry really fast. I don't know about you, but like, just the thought of fasting makes my stomach start to rumble. Just the idea that I'm going to deny my body food, my body rises up in rebellion, even if I've just eaten, and says, please eat more. Uh, there's just something inside of me that says, if I'm not going to do it, I want to do it even more. And when I start fasting, uh, weird things start going on in my head. Because I know that this isn't a supernatural headlock that I'm putting God in, but I start making deals with God. I start thinking that maybe I'm at the trading table with God and I'm trading me going hungry and I'm wondering, you know, what's coming back my way. And so I'll go into a convenience store, you know, and because I'm hungry and I say, well, I need to hydrate up. And so I, I go to the counter and I start wondering, is V8, like, is that food? You know, like, like if the drink is chewable, is that still fasting? You know, can you make like a steak smoothie and still say, yes, I'm fasting? I mean, seriously, you know, and so I'm sitting there in the counter going, okay, you know, like, what, what const, God, if I get V8, like, does that, like, make the whole fast null and void? Like, uh, yeah. You had to take a hard swallow. That means you're disqualified now. The fasting doesn't work. You just wasted your time. You might as well just go eat, you know? Okay. And I start, I start realizing that so much of me is on this deal-making place with God. That I find it so incredibly hard to believe that I am in a right place with God for one reason and one reason only. Because Christ has purchased that for me. That his work on the cross and his resurrection has put me in such a place that nothing can remove me from that place. That I have been placed in this place of favor. In the same way the Father has favor on the Son, Jesus Christ, now his favor is in that way to me because I stand in the place of Christ. Are you kidding me? That's hard to believe because when I fast, all of a sudden all kinds of sins start coming to the surface. I don't know about you, but when you start denying yourself, it almost lights a fire of desire within you. Anything to get away from the pain and the discomfort. I mean, you'll run to anything from yelling at people in traffic to, you know, watching abnormal amounts of TV so that you can just make the pain go away or whatever. Not that watching TV is a sin. It can be. I'll let you decide. You know those times in your life where you say to God, you know, it's a lot of times in song, God, I will walk a thousand miles for you. I will, I will dive to the deepest ocean. You know, I will, you know, I will love you forever. Swim the deepest seas. Lay down my life for you. How can you ask me to miss breakfast? So what is my reward? I'm, I'm going to leave the humor now. Because we're about to go to a place that uh, 
this is wrecking. It's not my desire for him. It's his desire for me. Listen to what he says in the Song of Solomon. A beautiful picture of our father who goes beyond a father and says, you are my bridegroom. When he says, I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. His desire is for me. Do you know that the Old Testament word for fasting literally translated means shut your mouth. To be still, to be quiet, to stop living in this religious life of trying to bring something to God and be still long enough to hear that our Father is saying, my desire is for you. I love you. Elijah had this experience. Maybe you've read it in Kings, First Kings, where God says, you know, I'm going to reveal myself to you. And he came in this, this tornado of wind and it ripped at the rocks on this cliff. And then he came in an earthquake, but he wasn't in either one of those things. And then he came in fire, but he wasn't in the fire. You remember what he did? Then he came in a whisper. And Elijah covered his head with his cloak. Why did he cover his head with his cloak? Because the father was in the whisper. And why would he cover himself? I understand it. Gee, I understand it. Because it is so intimate, isn't it? That he would come and draw his lips close to our ears and whisper. And what does he whisper? Be still. Let my love quiet you. So that you can hear that I am rejoicing over you with singing. That my desire is for you. Is it really? In Hebrews 12 it says, To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Abel's blood, when it was shed by Cain, it cried out for justice. It cried out to God that I've been murdered and my blood lays on the ground and it demands justice and punishment. Now the blood of Christ is spilt on the ground. But instead of justice, it's crying out satisfied. It's saying that in our place He shed His blood so that now we could know the whisper of our Father that says... I adore you. That he has removed my sin. He's taken away my shame. He's taken me from being not a people. And now he's made me his people. And Christ's blood shouts out, it is finished. You are his beloved. And his desire is for you. It's almost too much. The only illustration I could come with this week is... I was thinking about those cheesy Superman movies. I mean, seriously, where, you know, Superman swoops down and he picks up Lois Lane and he goes, want to go for a fly? And I was thinking, okay, how could she endure that? He just has one arm around her waist, you know, and they're going up to stratosphere. And I thought, man, that's what it's like when God draws close. Because if that was me, I would say, okay, this is kind of cool, but it's also incredibly terrifying. When, when are we going to get back down to the ground? I don't know if I can live up here. 
Let's, I gotta get my feet back on the ground. And I think for some of us, we have these, these encounters with God that are so profound that He takes us to such heights that it takes our breath away that we say, I don't know if I can drink in that kind of love for me. Put my feet back on the ground. So we go sin just to get away from the intensity of it. And some of us are wonderful sinners because we're having wonderful experiences with God. Fasting quiets me. That I can begin to try to believe that His desire is for me. And then fasting does something else. It's found also in the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. Fasting prepares me for the kiss of my father. It's not a peck on the cheek. It's not the kiss of your mother who always thinks the best of you and doesn't know any of the ugly junk that you don't tell her that you did at college. This is the kiss of the lover that knows everything. That stare is so intense that he sees right through you. He knows all the games you play. He knows all the ways you pretend. He knows all the crappy little things that you hang on to that you think are going to give you life. And yet he loves you and desires you and kisses you with his mouth. That's terrifying. If that's not terrifying for you, you've not experienced that kind of intimacy. To be found out, to be seen, to be known. You know, it's interesting. If you go to New Orleans and you walk down Bourbon Street, it's hard to walk down Bourbon Street. Any of you New Orleans people from New Orleans? Okay, let's trash it then. All right? No. You can't walk down Bourbon Street without hearing all this love language coming from the doors of all the pubs and stuff. And they're coming from the prostitutes of Bourbon Street. And what's crazy is that they're using all the language that God made your heart to naturally respond to. Hey, beautiful. Hey, good looking. Hey, come on. Good time. I will love you. I'll hold you. I'll cherish you. And you know, what's attractive about that to some people is it's the appearance of intimacy without the danger of it. It seems to artificially impersonate intimacy, but it takes all the danger out of it. And what's the danger of intimacy? (sighs) Wow. It's being caught. The other day I was, I was in my garage and, um, there was a dove in there. It had come in my garage. And I was like, <laughs> it came and landed on my shoulder and <laughs> Francis of Assisi. No. I opened the garage door and all the doors and I'm like, be free. I have given you your freedom. You know? And it just kept going from from banister to banister, from, you know, up in the rafters. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, if I get the broom out, <laughs> then I'll be able to direct him, you know. And so this big yellow thing started coming at the dove, and he started getting even more frantic. And, <laughs> until finally in his exhaustion, 
He couldn't find the door out. He landed on the workbench in my garage. And I thought, okay, I've seen magic. I will just go up and just gently grab him. I don't think doves carry rabies. Go out, be free. I'm getting closer and closer and he's, you know, and you can tell he's just exhausted and I'm getting closer and closer to him and right when I'm about to grab him, he takes off and I end up with a handful of tail feathers. We grilled him with a little Italian sauce. (laughs) Well, forgive me. I, I had to back away because I knew that um, my pursuit to set him free is going to kill him. That's what God's been doing to me. And he, he has been coming close. He is a consuming fire. And when he draws close, it is terrifying to think that the God of the universe, the one who draws close, knows that if he pursues me with all that God can pursue while I am running, 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 he knows his pursuit would kill us. He knows that. And it just humbled me to say, Lord, can I stop? Can I be still? Can I believe that your desire is for me? Can I let you kiss me? Can I let you step into those places in my life? Will I let you catch me? That's what fasting does. It pushes out, it turns the volume of the world down as it turns up the volume of our own self-sitterness. And we walk into a world of repentance before our Father and we believe in in the wretchedness of our own sin that He desires us and wants to kiss us. And He speaks. You go to Acts 13, the Holy Spirit spoke to them in their fasting. So here's two things that I want to do today. I want to do this. Um, Will you let the Lord catch you today? In other words, will you dare to let him reveal to you what it is that is keeping you flying all over the garage? And then I'm going to ask you, would you worship him? Because they worshiped. Because that's the response when we encounter God. It's the natural response for us to worship. Listen to what D.A. Carson said. If the heart of sinfulness is self-centeredness, then the heart of all biblical religion is God-centeredness. In short, it is worship. In our fallenness, we constrict all there is to our petty horizons. But when we encounter God, when, he, when we hear Him rejoicing over us, when He kisses us, it expands our horizons to behold the glory of God. We step out of our selfless, selfishness into selflessness because we're stepping into the grandeur of who He is in worship. Our desire is for the one we love. And then we are changed because we want more of that. Do you taste it? In Romans chapter 12, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of his desire for you and his kiss of you, 
to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Here we go. I got some new glasses the other day. These aren't them. These are actually old glasses, and the prescription's like 10 years old. So I really can't see any of you right now. That's okay. But they have to line the glasses up. And uh, the girl behind the counter looks at me and she goes, Now look me right in the eyes. No, I want you to stare at me right in my eyes. And she's staring back because she's got to mark something on the glasses. And I, I kept looking away. She goes, Would you look at me in my eyes? And I wanted to say no, because that doesn't belong to you. That's not yours. We belong to him. So we're about to look at him in the eyes. I want to ask you to let him kiss you. Speak to your heart. So we're going to have a time of prayer where you can speak to the Lord about that. And then we're going to stand and worship him. Okay? Don't be afraid. All right. Let's pray. And um, as these guys play this song, just use this time just to ask the Lord, um, what is keeping you from letting him catch you? Lord, we come to you right now. And just confess to you that it's a new thing for many of us to step into the journey of the gospel of believing that what changes us is not more love for you, but receiving more love from you. It's hard to believe that you even said that if we could grasp how much you love us, the height, the width, the depth, the length of your love, that it would fill us with the very fullness of God. What love language that is. And Lord, we long, we know we were made for this. But it is a scary thing. It's a scary thing to come and to know that you have such strong desire for us. And to know your kiss. So Lord, help us. Like that bird, I pray that we would stop running. That we would be still so that your pursuit wouldn't kill us. It would heal us. So hear us, Lord.